Hello. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. This is part three of a series of episodes where I'm going to be talking about different professional development activities that we might want to consider taking as we grow our career. I hope you enjoyed today's content and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Hello, welcome back to She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. Today's guest is Ashley Kreitzer, the real estate editor with the Tampa Bay Business Journal. Ashley, welcome to She's Wild. I'm excited to turn the tables on you today and do a little bit of an interview on you and your career path and then get into some things about publicity and how to properly work with a reporter uh, when we're folks are pitching a story or maybe trying to avoid coverage of a story. So welcome to She's Wild. I'm happy that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have the tables flipped. Yeah. So for the benefit of, of myself and everybody here listening today, give me a little bit more background of who you are, where you came from, and how you originally got into journalism. Sure. So I'm from a very small town in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, the closest city that you might have heard of is Altoona, the Altoona Curve, the famous horseshoe curve with the um, railroad track. But I went to a small state school outside of Pittsburgh and I went there political science pre-law. I had political ambitions and wanted to be an attorney, maybe even a lobbyist at some point. And it was maybe the second day of college. I walked into conversational Spanish and met a woman who was the managing editor of the college newspaper. And I said, you know, I used to want to do that, but I heard there's no money in it. And, you know, I have had my head had turned by this legal career. And she said, you know, no matter what you what career you pursue, this is good to have on your resume. So you should come take a story. So I went to their writers meeting that night. And the only story left was a day in the life of a dorm janitor. And I thought that sounded fascinating. I was like, wow, everybody has a story to tell that that sounds awesome. So I set up shop in like the little study lounge on my floor and just had the janitors come in as they had time interviewed them. And that was kind of it. I was hooked by the next semester. I was changing my major and just loved this idea that I could get people to tell me things and then turn around and publish it. Right. Like was like the best, you know, for a gossip like me, it was kind of like the best feeling that people would trust me. And then I could disseminate that information. That's a great story. So, but you said something in there, you said, Hey, I used to think that's what I wanted to do. I want to take even a further step back. When did you yeah. first discover your love for writing? Oh, I think, you know, my mother always says I was speaking at seven months, like full sentences by a year to 18 months. And she and my grandmother always said that I should go into news in some form or fashion, something like Oprah. Um, broadcast is even harder to get into than print. And just, you know, they read to me from the time I was a very small child. So I've always had sort of that love for words and language and was just always way ahead in in writing and language classes. So it was just, it was just a natural thing for me. That's awesome. So I don't know if you know this, you might, um, but I actually have a master's degree in journalism or mass communication from the UF. And uh, my specialty was in public relations. And I like to tell people I never really worked in that field, but I use those skills all the time that I learned. So tell me when you, when you changed your major to journalism, did you continue to write for the student newspaper all through college? I did. I ended up being editor in my junior year and 
we are still coming out in print three days a week. So that was a big undertaking to run run a publication that was coming out three times a week. It came out Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So every Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, you were kind of locked in the office until it was done. Um, I'm old enough that we had to carry it to the printer, like old galley sheets. And then we had it on a, a CD by the time we were done with it. And then my last year of college, I worked at the Daily in town. So I went to school in Indiana County, Indiana, Pennsylvania. So it was the Indiana Gazette writing obituaries, little feature stories, just, you know, really in like a gritty old newsroom. And it was an afternoon paper. Like it didn't come out first thing in the morning. It came, the press is right. Like it came off the press around 11 a.m. So it was old school. That's cool. So what originally took you from Pennsylvania to Florida? Uh, my husband. So we met when he came home to visit family. He's from the same small town I was, but he's older than me. So we weren't in school at the same time. And we met and, you know, I was in my early 20s and just thought, whatever, like I can do whatever I want, but I wouldn't move without a ring. So after five months of long distance dating, he proposed and I moved from Pennsylvania to Jacksonville. And you were in Jacksonville for 10 years? Is that right? Four, four years. Oh, not quite 10. It felt, okay, so felt, four like, years. felt like 10 years. It was just four. Yeah. And did you work with the Business Journal in Jacksonville the whole time? Or I did. You so, came from the Business Journal in Jacksonville to Tampa. I did. So the same friend who got me into journalism back in, in college uh, was working at the St. Louis Business Journal. She was living in St. Louis and was the digital editor in St. Louis and said, hey, the Jacksonville paper needs a real estate reporter. And I said, well, what does that even mean? Am I going to write about houses? I don't I don't get it. And she said, well, just go to the interview. You'll figure it out. And I did. So you did that for four years and then you moved to Tampa I guess it's been about 10 years ago. Maybe that's where I'm getting my dates. Almost nine. Time. Yeah. So it was Almost June nine. of 2014 that I moved that we moved to Tampa. So you moved to this region. And I mean, I'll tell you for anybody who doesn't know Ashley locally, you have the beat on all the real estate news. I mean, I, I'm always like texting you, like, how do you do this? I can't even, I'm like, how did she know that? How did she figure that one out? <laughs> so kudos. <laughs> Well, thank you. I always say that reporting is like dating 25 people at once and trying to keep them all from finding out about each other. But it's just a constant beating the drum of talking to people, checking public records and just, you know, keeping your eyes open and ears to the ground and what's going on out there. Right. So you've you've broken some really big stories here regionally. Um, but I have to ask, what's been one of your favorite projects to report on or to break the story? So I had been here about six months. It was maybe it was coming up on a year. It was 2015. And I learned that a developer wanted to build apartments on the site that was home to the Tampa Tribune. And everyone was speculating about the financial future of the Tampa Tribune because Warren Buffett had bought a portfolio of newspapers a few years prior to that. And the only one he didn't want was the Tampa Tribune. And a private equity firm had bought them. And everyone said, you know, the value of the Tribune is really in their waterfront real estate. So I had multiple sources telling me it's related group out of Miami is going to buy it, knock it down, build luxury apartments. So we blasted that out on a Friday afternoon and beat the Trib on their own real estate deal. So that, that was pretty special, especially having been in the market such a short period of time. Yeah, that's remarkable. Uh, but there's so many other ones, right? Like I can I can think of probably six just off the top of my head where I'm like, man, that was a big break. There are. That one always comes to mind because it was, you know, to beat another media organization, especially one that at one point was so esteemed as the Tampa Tribune, 
was a big one. Um, I was at the table when they confirmed to the local media that Bill Gates' Cascade Investment would be Jeff Bennick's partner on Water Street. And I was sitting there. It was a very, it was one of the strangest situations of my career. I was, I got a call that day at my desk. It was the former Lightning spokesman. And he said, we need you here at one o'clock. Don't tweet about this. Don't tell anyone you're coming here. I'm like, maybe this is where it ends. Like, maybe this is where the Vinet group just gets rid of me. I don't, this right. is very, are we going, am I going to be thrown in the river? Uh, but it was myself, a pair of reporters from the Tampa Bay Times and a reporter from the Tampa Tribune. And we sat down with the former CEO of the Lightning and he laid out this vision for a billion dollar district in downtown Tampa and said, our partner is Cascade Investment, the investment fund of Bill Gates. So that was enormous. To, to be at the table for that. And that was kind of the moment it crystallized for me, like moving to Tampa was a good idea because I was going to have this massive project to cover. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, I, I think it was, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but I met uh, your publisher at an event and we were chatting about you. And I said, you know, I was giving you kudos and I was like, Ashley's so great, man. She knows everything that's happening. And I'm always like, how'd you find out about that? And he mentioned to me that you had one of the biggest readerships in the business journal organization, like amongst all the markets, which I thought was awesome. But I wanted to know what you, what, what do you think about that? Well, I've always wanted to believe that my stories were the most well-read, even when it was like only a print edition and there was no way to measure that. So I love the metrics, right? Because I'm a pretty, there's different approaches to reporting. Some reporters are very quiet subject matter experts who appeal to their sources that way. I'm a pretty salesy reporter. I view it, you know, as a sales product. This is a transaction, right? I mean, we have a relationship, you and I have a relationship, yeah. but at the end of the day, it is a transaction and I want to close that transaction. I want to get the news out there before anybody else so that people read the story and ultimately subscribe to the business journal so that we have a sustainable financial model. But I love the metrics that show us that. And I think that in addition to breaking news and having interesting topics to cover, I'm a very good headline writer. So I even won like awards from the Pennsylvania Press Association for writing headlines. And I love writing a headline that you just have to click on and actually delivers no clickbait. It's got to deliver. Yeah, 100%. So I might have to hire you as a side gig to help me write some of my advertising headlines. Uh, because all the, all the time I'm thinking like, what's going to be the hook, right? Like what's going to get somebody to either open up an email or click on an ad for a property that I have listed. And so I'm always thinking, you know, what's the story and what's the exactly. hook? Um, and you only have 30 seconds to grab less than that. You have a 10th of a second to grab someone's eyeballs. Yeah. But somebody, I mean, somebody like you has such a talent. Like I'm like, ah, I struggle with that part, but I think. Oh. Just think about what you like to read. What would make you click on it? Sure, sure. So when somebody is trying to either get a story to you or uh, coverage on themselves or a project that they're working on, what's the best way for people to work with you? Like, how does that all... I mean, I sort of know, but we go back a long time. I can't even remember when we first met, but like, how does that work? I was trying to remember how we met initially, and I don't remember, but I think that the key is just to be a human. You don't have to hire a PR agency. If anything, they just get in the way. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some very talented communication folks who work in-house for bigger companies, and that's a different gig, but you don't need an agency to reach out to me. Absolutely not. Just reach out, be straightforward with you know your pitch of yourself, be efficient and 
good at pitching yourself. I think that's the key to so many things in life, whether it's a reporter or a job or just, you know, trying to make a new friend, (laughs) any, just know how to pitch yourself. Yeah. That's a good piece of advice. I know I once mentioned to you, I think we were on a call on something else and I said, Oh, I closed this deal. I have a press release that's coming. And you were like, don't wait for the press release. Just give me the details. And I knew that from journalism school, right? Like I knew that from 20 something years ago, but I don't do it because over the years I have had this sort of conditioning, right? By either the PR person inside or a publicist that the company is paying, like, don't do that. Um, But I think that's probably why you get so many leads is that if you can get people to not wait until their story is perfect to tell. Exactly. And it's, you know, whether it's as soon as like the the wire transfer hits your account and you're comfortable talking about it, it's also, and it's people understanding what I need and when I need it and understanding that while they, there's a benefit for them to getting their name in the paper and their deal in the paper, there's also a benefit for us. That benefit is having the news first. So it's understanding what both parties get out of the deal. Right. So how do you deal with it when, when folks say, I can't give you the exclusive, but this is coming? I find a way to work with what we've got, right? There there are times where, and I think the best strategy if you can't give someone an exclusive is just to be upfront with that and say, hey, I can't, my hands are tied for whatever reason, you know, tell them who else is going to be lined up with the news. And, you know, that's the second best thing is to know that you're getting it at the same time as someone else or that everyone has it under embargo, which means there's an agreed upon time that the story will be released. So, you can't win them all, but I always try to see, well, when can I release it? Or what could we do? Or could I get an interview beforehand? So it's always looking for that additional value proposition for our readers and bringing them the intel that only we can. Right. So I've had some uh, deals here in the region that don't have signs up. There's a different use on the property. It's being really effectively redeveloped. And I've had clients say, I do not want this in the media. Like I don't, we don't want, or or it's a strategic decision that the team is making. We don't want this in the media. The neighborhood might not be supportive. We want to really craft our messaging. Uh, and then it goes to like a public hearing. And I tell them, you know, from my PR background, I'm like, hey, once it goes to public hearing, like all bets are off. So you either want to be ready for a statement or just zip your lip. Like it just sort of depends, right, on who and what we're working on. Um you mentioned earlier in the interview that you pay attention to public records. Is that part of it for you? Like when something goes to a public hearing and you're watching like what the details are? Well, we get way out in front of it way before a public hearing, but I think it's naive in this day and age to think that keeping a potential redevelopment or development out of the press is going to keep the neighbors away. I mean, neighbors are so active. And if you look at Tampa City Council, there's been an explosion in neighborhood activists who are anti-development. So they're looking at public records the same as I am. It's going to go viral in their Facebook groups and their, their next door discussion. So I think the strategic thing for anyone to do is to be out in front on that narrative because either you tell your story or it's going to get told by the neighborhood groups as they see it from their perspective. Yeah, I work with a family here on the West Coast that has a a really large piece of land that they're not doing anything with. They still haven't decided what they want to do with it. And so it's just kind of hanging out there. And I get calls all the time, not from you, but from other members of the press because they figured out that I'm involved with the family and they're like, hey, what's happening there? And I'm like, nothing. And they'll tell me what they're hearing from the community. And I'm like, that's a lie. That's a lie. And on that project, I actually had the mayor of that little city actually tell me 
at the end of a public hearing, I was walking to my car, he stopped me and he was questioning me about something he had heard. And he was so insistent that he was right. And I'm like, I'm telling, I just looked at him and I said, you're wrong. This is not accurate. Whoever told you this was false information. And immediately I, like, before I even got in my car, I was calling the owner like, hey, like this is leaking. Like what's going on? It wasn't true, but it was really interesting. It was sort of like the game of telephone. Somebody called him to do some research and he misinterpreted the phone call. It and I is thought, wild. oh my God, if like a member of the press was there, it could have been a nightmare. It could have been. And the thing is, like, look at how quickly misinformation spreads. You know, just last week, there was that viral story about homeless veterans being displaced from a hotel in upstate New York to make way for people who were not in the country legally. And then we found out a week later that it was a hoax. And it generated so much outrage. I mean, that's an extreme example, but it's so easy if you lurk in any Facebook group, any local Facebook group. I really think that's the hotbed of this. That's where it usually begins, there or next door. But things just take on a life of their own. And then conspiracy theories emerge. They think reporters are in on it. It's a wild time to be in media. Yeah, because, you know, I'm thinking about like just just um, like Twitter and TikTok and how that's probably changed for your profession as well. Yeah, social media is a part of it, definitely. I mean, Twitter is a great way or it used to be a great way to put breaking news out there. I think with the rolling out of blue check marks you can purchase and nobody knowing what's an actual account and what's just a crazy fake account. I think Twitter is less valuable as a breaking news medium, but I think something the business journal has always been great at is just bringing our core, our core readers to our website and getting them to engage with our content on platforms we own. So if somebody is, whether they're in the Tampa Bay region or with uh, another market and they're in real estate and they have a great story, what makes a great story for you that might also translate into another market? So there's different different things make a story, right? So it could be the location of the deal, or it could be a very small project, but there's a really cool story behind it. Or we had a pitch this week where it wasn't exactly a new twist on the project, but the way the developer is pursuing the project is it reflects the new affordable housing laws that were signed in Tallahassee. And I said, so we don't need to look at this as a straight news story, but it's an explainer on how this developer chose to use the laws to his advantage. Cause that's what people want to know now that they're in effect. So it's thinking through those multiple angles because, you know, this is an extreme example, but a seven 11 in one neighborhood might not be news, but in another, I mean, a seven 11 is probably not news anywhere, but think about that, like different retailers and where they're going. Yeah, no, I think I once sold like a half an acre, I think it was about a half an acre on the beach and you guys picked up my story. And I was like, what? It's a half an acre. But it did have like a couple like interesting things. It had been sitting out there for a while. It was bought like a New York, by a New York like investment guy. Um, You know, it was at the end of the year when news was probably light. Uh, And it was a big number. And I'm like, okay, well that, and at the end of, I think that was at the end of twenty. So, you know, we we're sort of still coming out of COVID. So there was a lot of that folks were coming in from outside of the state of Florida and making huge bets on the region. So I know you guys covered that. And I was, but I was surprised because I thought, well, that's just like a half an acre on the beach. Like it's not but even. But it's on the beach. Yeah. Like, and that doesn't happen every beach. day. Yeah. That, I mean, there's not a whole lot of oceanfront real estate trend or Gulf front real estate transacting. Yeah. So going back to like giving advice. 
you know, because I, I, I think it's just inherent for me or I have a team that I work with. If somebody didn't want something out, what's the best way to engage you and say like, please don't report on this until X date. Is that an embargo? I I think, yes, I am very open to working under embargo. And if you come to me and say, Hey, Ashley, I have this massive deal closing, but I cannot talk to you about it until June 30th. Then I'm in the loop. Then I know And then we can work together again under embargo where we're discussing the project and it will be published, but not until an agreed upon date. So I think if someone has a relationship with the media that they trust and feel confident in, it's absolutely in their best interest to go to them early and engage them. Well, and I think you do a really, really good job here locally of being very fair to whoever it is that you're covering in addition to the story. Because I know I had another deal that you guys picked up and I hadn't gotten anything to you. And I texted you and I was like, that was my deal. And you were like, oh, I'm going to add you right now, which was great. You know, because I was like, oh, I hadn't, it happened so fast. I guess you guys probably saw like a deed recording or something. Um, and so that, I think that helps, right? Because you're out there helping me get my name out there as well, which I always love. So you're always my first person to call. Like I'm giving the story to Ashley. No idea who's at the other media. Well, I appreciate that. But it's also that recognition, right, that it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. And right after I started in Jacksonville, an industrial broker took me out in his giant pickup truck and drove me around the port area to point out different warehouses and different industrial properties. And I never would have done that on my own, nor would I have known what I was looking at. And at the end of it, I was like, thank you so much. This was incredible. I really appreciate it. He said, hey, Ashley, just remember it goes both ways. And I was like, oh, yeah, it does. Like, Right. Like we're all using each other was within a certain like a certain set of boundaries. But it has to be mutually beneficial too. Yes, exactly. And fair. Um, Mm -hmm. So speaking of industrial and some of the the projects that you covered, I asked you what was your favorite? What's your favorite asset class? Oh, it really depends. I do love a good industrial deal when someone's either leasing a massive amount of space or buying it. We had a big one last year, Target. I think Target's building, it's well over a million square feet. It's just a monster deal. So those are exciting because I don't think enough general readers outside of commercial real estate appreciate industrial real estate. Mm -hmm. And it's really emerged as the sexiest class in the last couple of years. And it continues to be. Even and today. as someone who loves to shop online, I love it. Build more, yeah. build them closer, bring it to my door within the hour. I I am here for it. But love that. Um, love a dysfunctional retail property. I think the Tampa Bay region is pretty immune to that because we've had so little retail development that our retail market's pretty healthy. If anything, there's more demand than there is space. But love looking at really dysfunctional properties, whether they're on the retail or office side. When you say dysfunctional, give me a little bit more information. What are you talking about? So there was a a development in Jacksonville called Tinseltown, and it was the weirdest. It was a shopping. I don't want to call it a shopping center because it had a big movie theater and different little components that would have a restaurant or a little store. And some parts of it were thriving. And then others were just dusty, crusty, vacant storefronts. And it was like, what is the deal here? Not to be too Seinfeldian for you, but that's, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So in talking to retail brokers, they explained why some concepts thrive there and why some don't. Or if something has a really complex ownership history and breaking that down and explaining why, even though it seems fine and functional, the financials and the ownership structure are going to be a problem. Yeah. 
I, I could see that. Cause even, I mean, I see stories or even on some of the deals I'm on, I'm like, there's so many layers of complexity sometimes behind the scenes that really don't just dis- get disclosed in public records. So you don't even re- really good reporters don't always know the whole story. Um, and I, and I see that, you know, I have one of those deals right now where like I'm under a CA, I can't do anything. It's in my listing agreement. Like you cannot talk about this even after closing. And I'm like, awesome. I can't put a sign on the property and I can't tell anybody what's disclosed. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. But it's, you know, some people just, they want their privacy and and I have to respect that. I get it, but it's probably ultimately going to come around and not it will. be favorable to them if you're not able to help them. I mean, I think for a broker or a developer to explain to their clients that press coverage is an inevitability, it's coming. And the yeah. best thing you can do is participate in it, or it's going to get way out, way beyond your control. Yeah. Yeah. I usually kind of give them like a little one-on-one on crisis control and crisis media training. I'm like, listen, like you want to be in control of the narrative whatever that let's at least sit down and craft something together. Even if it's not perfect, at least you have a statement ready, you know, and figure that out. But still some people are, they're like, I don't want to read about this in the paper. And I'm like, well, we live in a disclosure state, so it's going to get picked up. You know, somebody's going to grab it and say, that's just another service you offer. It's not just land brokerage, media consultations. I love it. Yeah. And I don't really like, I don't really talk about that, but my clients who've been with me for a long time, like they've, we've all had those conversations. I should put that in my proposals though. Like I have this training and you know, it's old, but it's still functional, still the same concepts. We also cover really significant residential sales. And like, Mm -hmm. there are agents in the market at this point who will warn their clients, Hey, this is going to be picked up by the press. And if you don't want that to happen, then you need to seal it up. If you're taking a mortgage, it's not going to matter because your name's going to be on the mortgage. And I think that's really smart on their part, because then they're also preparing them for the inevitability is going to be in the paper. And then they can give me a heads up and maybe get their name in the paper. So that's just smart. And it's also like a good service to offer the person. Cause I, I know some of their clients will say, I don't care, put my name in the paper right. and others will be horrified by the idea and go hopefully have a lawyer that's smart enough to wrap up their LLC airtight. Well, and I'm sure that you see this too. And when you're researching different LLCs, but it doesn't take me long to figure it out. It's usually no. the second, if not the first click on Sunbiz, yeah. it's the second mm-hmm. or third. And I either recognize the address or the attorney and I can usually put it all together. Every yeah. once in a while, I'm like, I cannot figure out who this is. That does happen. But I guess people don't try very hard because it doesn't happen often. No, no. And especially if it's something that's like a little bit of an older LLC, I feel like the newer ones sometimes can be harder to track down. But, you know, I tell people like, I can find phone numbers through the SunBiz. Like you just got to go far enough back. Mm-hmm. That's a little, little secret right there. And, and, you know, you can find a phone number for a property owner or somebody, a developer that you know, maybe flying under the radar. So been known to do that. So I'm going to switch gears because I know that uh, during COVID, uh, I think it was during COVID, it might've been before. So you can correct me if it wasn't then, you started to dabble in another love and that's book reviews. And I follow you on social media and you talk about all the books that you read. I've seen the pictures of your library at home, which is like mind-blowing how many books you read. Tell me, Ashley, how many books do you read on average a month? A month? Um, Probably eight to 10. 
how many pages? Like 250, 400 pages? Uh, a typical commercial fiction novel these days is 300 to 350 pages. That's that's crazy. <laughs> I don't think it's crazy. The thing is, and I do not say this as any sort of humble brag, I don't watch television and it's not because I think I'm better than television. It's because the way my mind works, television, the narrative often doesn't move fast enough for me. It's almost like an ADHD thing where I you know, I can't pay attention because like my mind's already ahead of it. But when I'm reading, I'm in control of the pace. So, so you started these reviews, you started putting them online, you started becoming known. And then you're also not only a reporter doing the real estate coverage for the business journal, but now you're talking about all these books that you're reading and now you're on local. I think it's just local. Have you been picked up anywhere beyond local news? Not yet. Maybe someday. That would be fun. Um, Fox 13, Tampa Bay, a big shout out to Linda Hurtado Bond. She's had me on. She has a segment called Tampa Bay Reads, promoting local authors, local bookstagrammers. Um, She does also like national authors. If they're coming into town, she'll do a segment on them and really got to give a shout out to someone willing to promote literacy in Florida in 2023. Like it's, it's fantastic to have that in the local market. And it's also great exposure for me, but you're right. That did start during COVID is when I started posting book reviews online because I really had nothing else to post on Instagram, right? Pre-COVID was all brunches and travel and things and that all went away. And I was like, well, I'm not going to post my makeupless face sitting around in this apartment, which is all 2020 and 2021 were. So I was like, well, I could share book reviews. And look at you now. So how many book reviews have you written since then? Well, I read a hundred books in 2021 and 2022. So probably 200. And then I've read 36 to date this year. That's So I really like uh, female-led suspense books. I'm hesitant to call them thrillers. Sometimes they're just a little more suspenseful with really dominant personalities. Hard to imagine, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But, and sometimes with a little element of soapiness, almost like a soap opera, you know, rich people behaving badly is a favorite trope of mine. And we get a good dose of that in commercial real estate too. So it's nice to see it on the, the pages of a novel as well. Uh, before we wrap up, I would love to just, you know, I ask all my guests several questions at the end of every uh, episode. Uh, typically, I have a woman that's in my field in land and development on. In this case, I'm talking to somebody who is related to our industry. Uh, but I'll ask you anyway, when you look back at your life, is there a piece of advice either somebody shared with you or that you would like to share with someone else if they are looking at either making a change or taking the next step in their career? You know, I don't know if anyone has ever said this to me, but it's certainly the way I sort of my worldview is that, and I always joke that it's my toxic trait is um, never questioning whether I belong at any table. And I was just born this way, but I wish that I could open up this mindset to other women because I see so many women question or, or they talk about imposter syndrome And it's not something I can usually relate to because I, like I said, I was born this way, but I just, you know, I just want people to get out of their heads and just go for it. And like, what's like, what's the worst that could happen if you speak up or you approach someone? What an awkward interaction. Well, life's full of them. Yeah, no, that's, that's an awesome piece of advice. And just like you said earlier, you always had a love of reading, even when you were very, very young. I've always had a love of like talking to strangers and trying to sell them whatever it was that I was trying to peddle, right? Um, candy bars, whatever. Like even if it was just to get like attention, like I, you know, I have 
hear stories about from my family. They'll be like, oh yeah, you were the kid on the block knocking on everybody's door. You know, we'd have to like pull you home. And I'm like, of course I was, um, which is really funny. But yeah, I, I feel like as I've gotten older, that whole like questioning at the table has become a bigger deal for me and for others, which is really, really weird because I have to remind myself that no, I know what I'm doing and I deserve to be in that room and certainly at the head of the table quite often. So that's well, one great. Of my favorite, one of my favorite books I read last year was a memoir called Token Black Girl by Danielle Prescott. And we, we can link it in the show notes. Yeah, and that'd be great. at one point she says, I've always taken a perverse pleasure in occupying spaces that were never meant for me. And I just relate to that so much because I didn't grow up in this world of commercial real estate. I didn't grow up in this money to go to a Tampa prep school, go to UF, come back. I know, I know you didn't either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about that a lot. And I do take a perverse pleasure in, in being in spaces that were never meant for me. So that's uh, embrace it. Yeah, no, I, I, I can feel that very much. And when I get those opportunities where I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't see this opportunity coming and I know who I'm up against, I'm like, oh, I am going to pour every ounce of effort into like showing the world that I deserve that assignment or whatever it is. Um, so I, I'm with you on that. And I, and I do even tell my kids like, what's the worst that can happen? You fail. Okay. Well, you're going to get yourself up and you're going to brush yourself off and you're going to figure it out. I mean, that's life. Life right. is full of those Things. And unless we're talking outside of horrific tragedies, like almost everything's undoable. Yeah. Although I feel like not, and we're not going to go there, but I feel like today it's harder to take some of those risks than maybe it would have been 15 or 20 years ago. Because of the like online. Kind of like cancel culture. And if you, like you said, everything is almost recoverable. There's some things that I think are hard to come back from. And I think one lesson in that, I think, you know, we've been talking about publicity and PR and there's so many people that seem to look at like their Facebook and these, I mean, we're both, you and I are public figures to an extent, but these are people who are not. And they're basically writing press releases about life moves, whether it's a pregnancy or a job or this or that. And it's like, you don't have to put everything you do online. That was one reason I found the book reviews so comforting because it wasn't about me. It was about a book. And something that you loved, right? That like, if you love a book and a story or hate it, what a great thing to share because then you can turn other people on to something that you love or save other folks time. Maybe you're not you know, at, my, at my book club meeting this past weekend, a woman said to me, you know, you were posting about the library and it's almost like I forgot it was there. So I put a bunch of library books on hold. And I was like, that's the coolest pl- thing anyone said to me in a long time. Like, yes, use the library, support the library. We have an amazing public library system here in Tampa Hillsboro. And I'm sure other, you know, your listeners yeah. and other municipalities do as well. So please support your local library. Yeah, I agree. You know, I can remember as a kid, um, going to the library with my dad all the time. He used to read like the business, I mean, um, the um, the Wall Street Journal at the library. Like we would drive up to the libraries right across the street from a Burger King and he would give me like maybe a dollar and be like, go get yourself a burger and eat it on the way back. And he taught, he, that's who taught me how to use like library resources. It was my dad. But he had just, just unquenchable thirst for knowledge and reading and, you know, not the kind of reading you do, but he was much more like he wanted to be better educated. So, well, and here in Tampa, if you have a Hillsborough library card, you can get free access to the New York Times, even from within your own home, which is amazing. I don't pay for a New York Times subscription anymore. I get it through the library. You know, it's funny that you say that because I wonder, I get 
access online. And I'm like, I don't pay for that. I don't, I wonder if I got it through the library. Because <laughs> I think years ago, I signed up for a bunch of stuff free through the library. And I'm like, I wonder if that's what it is. Right, right. Side note. Um, okay. One more question for you. Um, what has been the most inspirational book that you've read recently? Oh my gosh, inspirational. So I would say Stone Cold Fox by Rachel Kohlercroft. And it's about a female con artist who's about to marry into a very rich family. That's not what was inspiring. Uh, what was inspiring was this author bringing to life this genre that I have come to love, like really unlikable, ambitious women and making it just readable as hell. That's a great place to leave. Again, I want to thank you for being here, for giving some tips on how to work with folks in your position and your space. And uh, I hope to have, you know, one of these stories break soon. I'll make sure that I call you with the exclusive when, when I can. Um, but again, I want to thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. This was fantastic. All right. Awesome. See you soon. See you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. If you enjoyed today's show, please go out and rate us so that we can be found by other women in our industry. And if you know women who are working in land and development, please share this podcast with them. And if you know a total rock star woman, badass chick who is killing it in land and development anywhere in North America, I want to know who she is. Please reach out to me so that I can feature her on an upcoming episode.